You are listening to a Sunday morning message from River Corner Church. River Corner Church is a growing church community of everyday people who gather to worship God, follow Jesus, and journey through life together. You are invited to gather with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about something you heard in this message, or if you want to learn more about our growing church community, visit us online at rivercornerchurch.com. When I was growing up, I had a white cat by the name of Friscus. This resilient cat lived to be like 17 years old, and he was very spunky. Loved spending time outside, and so my father had rigged this wash line system with a leash that he could pretty much walk around our whole yard. Friscus, however, liked to go a little further than our yard. He liked to chase birds and try to go hunting. And so our house, which sat on the edge of some woods, had trees right on the edge of our property line. And he would stretch his leash and climb the tree uh, to, you know, go after some birds or to have an adventure. And he'd reach this tree easily 25, 30 feet in the air and either find himself too scared to come down or now tangled up in his leash. And because he knew he was now beyond his own capability, that he could no longer survive on his own power, he was helpless, he would cry. And it was the most pitiful, helpless, uttermost disgusting cry. It was like this bellowing moan that would come out. And I would come out and try to talk him down, but it didn't even matter if I came out or my sister or anyone else. He would continue to let this uttermost ugly cry out onto my father would come home and come out with a ladder. And he would extend it into the tree, climb and carry the cat down safety, just like some fireman movie of the 80s. But Friscus knew that he was going to continue to cry onto my father should it because only my father had the power to transform his reality. It was the presence and authority that my father had that made things different from him. And you would think, by the way, that he would have done this once or twice and learned his lesson, but that was never the case. This morning, we're continuing to look at the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to see today the way that we pray or call out or we cry out for God's presence in a way that it makes a difference in our lives, and that we're reminded to or cry out for his rule and reign to transform our realities. As I said last week, while most of us maintain a dedicated and disciplined sense of prayer, and we integrate it into our daily lives, we walk away from our prayer times usually with a sense of peace, but little experience outside of that. But I think Jesus gives us a prayer, the Lord's Prayer, That's more than just about experiencing God's peace. The Lord's Prayer summarizes, in many ways, all of Jesus' important teachings and invites God in a unique way to be part of our lives and to be part of our lives in some powerful, revolutionary ways. Too often, our approach to prayer is this sense of duty-bound obligation with fluctuating consistency. And though I don't think that every prayer we pray should be otherworldly, I do think that our practice of prayer should be more expectant and experiential than we usually believe it is. And I think that's the point of the Lord's Prayer. 
So for this series, we've been looking at a, uh, for this uh, morning, we're going to continue our series, The Rhythm of Prayer. Our series explores what it means to have a more effective discipline of prayer. And we're going to be studying the Lord's Prayer to find that. Through the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has gifted us a a practice or a discipline of prayer that is essential to our spiritual formation. In it, Jesus teaches us the secret of his relationship with God the Father. Through the rhythm of this essential prayer, we are renewed and reminded of the Father's character, his kingdom, his provision, his forgiveness, his guidance, and protection. And throughout the series, we're going to look at each line of the Lord's Prayer, looking at each one of these traits of the Lord's Prayer, to see what it can teach us about the Spirit-filled life. The hope is that we'll cultivate new insights into fostering a greater sense of intentionality and intimacy and illumination in our prayers. The Lord's Prayer is meant to be a relational aspect of our relationship with God, with a living and good God, and it's meant to reprioritize and reshape our outlook, our choices, our actions, and our truth. This morning we're going to be reading from Matthew 6, 4 through 13. Matthew 6, 4 through 13. I'm going to be reading out of the New International Version. I invite you to follow along, and as I look at this passage, I invite you to look at it with fresh eyes. Last week we looked at Luke's account of this teaching, and today we're going to look at Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 5 through 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now last week when we looked at the Lord's Prayer in Luke's narrative, we saw that prayer, and we unpacked how prayer is a significant practice among Jewish people. But for many, it had unfortunately become deeply rooted in tradition and duty-bound obligation. And truthfully, as I said, the same thing can happen today. And it happens to all of us if we're not careful. In Jesus' prayer, though, Jesus' followers saw something different. They didn't see this duty-bound obligation. Rather, they recognized this unique prayer that was central, this unique way of posturing oneself in prayer that was central and essential to Jesus' relationship with the Father. In this Matthew 6, through, uh, 6, 5 through 13 passage, Jesus is giving a rhythm to define our prayers. But he also starts by giving us some warnings on what prayer should not be like. And maybe at first glance, it looks like Jesus is against praying in public. But Jesus is not so much against them praying in public as much as he's against 
praying in a way or challenging prayer that longs to be seen. Jesus gives us the posture for effective prayer, prayer that is done to the audience of one. Later on in the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, will write, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The word for powerful there carries this intent that God's spirit is on it and that it's effective, or that it means it is heard and God enacts on your behalf. That effectiveness we see is that God's presence comes through prayer. Jesus didn't have a problem if they prayed in the park, but he did have a problem if they were praying in the park or the street as a sign or in a performance sort of way. He recommended an approach to prayer that avoided any temptation of being performance by moving away from others and expectations of others into a space in your house that was so private and so away from others. Now, just as a side note, in the past few years, I've noticed more and more protests, rallies, political outings, and other public events that have taken to the public sphere with this sense that they are worship events or prayer events. In fact, this is nothing new. In my lifetime, I've watched the forming of the National Day of Prayer. Now, these things, I think, border on on healthy ways of what Jesus is approaching at here. I want us to not be infatuated or ignorant of Jesus' warning in this past, uh, infatuated with that public display or ignorant of what Jesus' warning is in this passage. Though that's not exactly what Jesus was coming against, I think all of those things border too closely to the territory that Jesus is warning against in this passage. He's asking them to make sure that their prayers Never make a scene, a show, or a spectacle. Rather, that they are always a very intimate and intentional act that is serene, it's serious, and sincere. Jesus instructs them that when they practice the discipline of prayer, they're not to be like the hypocrites. Now, hypocrites in this day were street performers, and they were people who performed as others by wearing a mask to hide who they were, to show the audience who they were pretending to be. So if I was pretending to be the emperor, I would wear a mask on a stick that looked like the emperor, and I would come out and act in that way. Jesus states that there are some people in their day who put on a show with their prayers. They are hypocrites. They're actors in the street. These hypocritical people pray, in essence, in a way that their prayers are not coming truly from who they are, but rather they're praying from a place that masks who they are so that other people around them think they are someone different than they are. It was not a discipline that brought reward from God's favor. The nature of prayer in this passage is never to make a scene, a show, a spectacle, but always act in a serene, serious, and sincere act. We must ask, what is the intent behind our prayers? Jesus says that when these hypocrites are seen by others in their prayers, this sense of being seen is the only reward that they'll receive. In that passage, the word that Jesus uses for reward is a financial term. It is a term that represents 
a wage for a day's work. It speaks to the way that a person receives wages for their own efforts. The prayers we do in our own power don't receive God's blessings. They only achieve what we can achieve on our own efforts or out of our own selfish power. I think what I take away from this is God doesn't even bother to honor uh, prayers like that that are not from a state of sincerity, that are out of our selfish power. I take away that the state of our heart, the intent of our hearts matter, and we must note that we can pray in a wrong and ineffective way. Jesus goes on then to say that that if someone prays in their room or their closet, depending on what translation you are using, they will receive a reward from God. Now, let me just pause here for a minute because there's an important contrast. The word that Jesus now uses from reward is a different reward. In fact, he's speaking to the way that you receive the favor of God. The word for reward Jesus uses the second time, those who pray well, isn't about receiving your pay for a day's work. Rather, it's about being awarded something or repaid for something or receiving a yield on an investment. So if I make a wise investment or I put money into a CD and I earn interest on it, that kind of term is what Jesus is using here in this second passage. The prayers that are serene and serious and sincere are intimate prayers that receive and understand and are blessed by the favor of God. Ineffective prayers are easy. You don't have to think about what you're doing. You just do it. But effective prayers... Take great intentionality. Jesus speaks about them praying in a room that has a door and is in secret. It's secluded. It's this inner room of their house. As I said, some translations call this a closet. However, homes in this era did not have closets. Katie and I, when we first got married, we lived in a city, an apartment that was just shy of 500 square feet. That's very small. Thankfully, we only paid about a dollar per square foot, so our rent was also under $500 a month. Those were the days. It was on the third floor, which was fun to carry our groceries up, and it was laid out weirdly. To access the bathroom, you actually had to walk through our bedroom. We had this long, skinny hallway that only a full-size bed could fit down. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm 6'5 and over 200 pounds, so sleeping on a full-size bed is quite creative. The other thing weird about this house was closets were an afterthought. They built them years after this house was built. In fact, we had just one in our bedroom, and it was wide, but it wasn't deep. It might have been only six inches deep which means that a hanger couldn't fit in straight in. You had to turn everything on a 45-degree angle if you wanted to be able to pull the doors shut. The only other closet we had in that apartment was this room we called the pantry. And really, it was just a closed-off staircase to the attic or what was the attic. And that staircase closed off was where we kept our food and vacuum and cleaning supplies. That kind of idea of a pantry, a place where you store your stuff, 
your treasures or your food. That's what Jesus is speaking to here. It would have been the only room that had a door inside a house in his time. And not everyone even had one of those. These, some homes in his time had a small pantry-like room for treasures or food. And this is what Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking about this intentionality space away from the public, without a window, with no chance of being seen. With such a serene, serious, and, and sincere approach to prayer, then our focus can only be on God alone, without distraction, without worrying about what others think or what other expectations are on us. A prayer in public is distracted and comes with temptations, but prayer in private is undistracted and intimate. After convincing them on how to posture their prayers, Jesus gives them this rhythm to prayer. And we looked at Luke's telling last week, and you may have noticed there's a little bit of differences between Luke. We could speculate a lot of things. Some scholars think that Jesus probably taught this prayer more than one time. Some speculate that Matthew added some poetic nature to it. Um, we also get some ideas from others that Luke perhaps just assumed that we'd be familiar with Matthew's telling and he abbreviates it. But if we'd look at them and we'd compare them side by side, though the wording might be slightly different, the rhythm is the same. First, we focus on God's character. Secondly, we focus on God's kingdom. You may also notice both versions have a line missing from the way you and I pray the prayer. What's missing from it? A line that says, for yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory, forever and ever. Amen. This section is not in Matthew or Luke's telling of it. In fact, it doesn't appear in the scriptures or any manuscript we have of the scriptures ever. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from about 55 to 150 A.D. from a small document called the Didache, the Didache was a document that just translates as the teaching. In the Orthodox Church, this is still considered an inspired book. It is a teaching of the early apostles around the teachings of Jesus. It was only used in the early Jerusalem churches. And in the Didache, it tells the Lord's Prayer quite like it tells it in Matthew. He pretty much, word for word, says it like that. But it appears with this line, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And like Matthew, the Didache prefaces the Lord's command with this. Don't praise the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel. Now, by the way, I'm going to make the argument that I think Matthew's telling the Lord's prayer is most correct because it's word for word how it is in the Didache. Some people speculate there's this document called Q. You may have heard of it. I I'm under the belief that Matthew is Q, that it's probably the oldest of the four Gospels, and we get maybe the most authoritative look at what the Lord's Prayer looks like. Then it tells the Lord's Prayer, but then at the end of it, it says this in chapter 8 of the Didache. Pray this three times a day. Pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, three times a day. This command to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day isn't meant to be this legalistic, duty-bound obligation. Rather, this is the disciples who walked with Jesus, knowing that this power had become, the prayer had become so powerful and transformative for them. They experienced something in it. They watched how Jesus experienced something in it. They wanted the same thing for their followers, for their disciples and their churches. 
most Jews at this time, and we see what Jesus is referring to here in this, most Jews at this time saw prayer as an act of centering on God's reverence. It was kind of worship, which is why doing it in public made sense. Greeks, or the pagans in this document, uh, see something about prayer way different. They believe it's a way of getting something. Jesus challenges both of these. In Greek prayers, they would try to pile as many names for God as they could. Oh, you beloved, handsome, lovely, good God. And they would also call him many gods with the hope of kind of getting them to turn their face or their ear to them and creating a contract with them to be able to get something. If they could just get their attention, they believed that they would get something out of the prayer. Our prayers to God often just give reverence or they just often try to get something from God. Both approaches to prayer like this still happen in our prayer lives and in our churches. But prayer is worship and so much more. It is asking God for our needs, but it's so much more. It's relationship, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. Theologian Craig Keener remarks that Jesus is affirming that effective prayer is a relationship of intimacy, not a business partnership model. We haven't gotten to the part of our needs yet. Jesus is still teaching them that prayer is this act of focus and realignment to who God is. Now, in many ways, we often hear that what Jesus did in the Lord's Prayer was something new. And he did do some really new things about it. But it's not unfamiliar to people of this day. Most Jewish prayers of this day utilize similar language minus Abba or Daddy or Father. They would have used Heavenly Father, as we looked at last week, or Hashim, or uh, King of the Universe. Though Jesus uniquely takes from many prayers of their day, of which they had many, and combines the best of the best into this unique, intimate, and intentional rhythm of prayer. In the Kedashat Hashim, a third blessing of the weekday prayer, just to give you an idea of how many prayers were in this day, we see a line second, uh, very similar to what we looked at last week. It says, holy is your name, or hallowed is your name. Last week, we saw the way that the Lord's Prayer first calls us to focus on God's character, and we talked about why and what that means. And this morning, I want us to focus on our remaining time around the second line of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, not an unfamiliar line. In the Jewish mourner's Kadesh prayer, we get a similar line that says, May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime, and during your days, and within the life of the entire house of Israel, speedily and soon. By the way, I like Jesus' version a lot more. It flows better, it's easier to remember, it's shorter. The mourner's prayer was this request for a swift arrival of the messianic kingdom as long as God's divine will wanted to bring it about. And that's what many in Jesus' day were looking for. In fact, if you look at Jesus' birth, when they go into the temple, there's this guy named Joseph Arrhythmia there, and it says he was waiting for the arrival of God's kingdom. In this line, Jesus teaches, your kingdom come, your will be done, that... He did establish the kingdom of God, the reign of God. And in this line, we're reminded that we can pray in a way, our prayers should be prayed in a way that brings heaven where God is, where he 
exists, the realm in which he lives, where we will be in eternity, and we bring it here and now into the present. In this prayer, we are reminded that we are ambassadors of God's kingdom. Jesus intends us to be co-collaborators of his kingdom. Individuals who are seeking and acting in confidence and concordance for God's will to be done in our lives, in the lives of others, and in the lives of others around us. This line reminds us that effective prayer is meant to realign us back to God's kingdom, which simply means his rule and his reign, or his right to rule and reign. It helps us reorient ourselves to the reigning, loving, goodness, and good news of God and what it longs to do in us, with us, and through us. Not just in, with, and through us here and now, but the places that we live, that we work, we play. Now, I was never a fan of wrestling on TV. I think it's hardly a sport. I know I've probably offended some people in the room. Uh, but I loved playing wrestling video games when I was growing up. Uh, in the 80s, the arcade scene was popular, and there were these WWE or F wrestling things you could play. And there was this mode called Tag Team. Tag Team is this great idea where when you were starting to run out of uh, power and you felt like you were losing, you could tag someone to come in and support you. You could get their support, their power and strength in the ring with you. It's probably also not fair to have like three people on one, but it was a good way of winning. Jesus intends his disciples to understand the Lord's prayer in the same way, that God's presence and power that's outside of the ring can be with us now inside of the ring. And that's important. That's why it's important for us to get away from distractions into, into private spaces and to focus on God's strength, not our own. The word that Jesus uses for kingdom describes a king's right to rule and reign in an era. God's right to rule and reign in an era is a reality that is meant to invade our hearts, but also our lives. It's also a reality that means God's presence is invading and longs to invade the world around us and to liberate it. To bring justice, to bring good news, to bring goodness. In this step of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus intends us to see that no matter what situation we are facing, no matter what reality is knocking at our doors, we reflect and remember that God's kingdom can break in. We can tag team him in into the moment and be there with us, bringing redemption and restoration. In Luke 4, Jesus defines what spirit-filled kingdom living looks like. When he came out of the desert, full of the Spirit, he opened a scroll to Isaiah and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In the Lord's Prayer, in this line, we are asking for God's kingdom to come with power, with might, with good news, with freedom, with recovery, with liberation, with God's favor, in the same way that it came through the ministry of Jesus. 
We are asking for those things to invade every area and arena of our lives. Even today, ongoing within Jewish circles and synagogues, there are prayers that pray similar things. There's the Amidia and its 14th and 15th petitions that reflect on this longing for the Messiah's kingdom. While we agree with them that the full realization of God's kingdom will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back, what they're missing out on is something we get glimpse of in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus began the inauguration of God's rule and reign 2,000 some years ago. It's a reality that continues today. We are reminded that we are part of it today. Not just that we get to see something that's yet to happen. In Revelations 21, 1 through 4, John, an early follower of Jesus, has this otherworldly vision, perhaps in a time of prayer. And he says, I saw that there's a new earth and coming where God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. This second line of the Lord's Prayer is meant to help us prophetically begin to see what John was seeing, that these things are already beginning to be made new. Through prayer, God is already beginning to dwell with the people of God. The rule of reign of God is setting up shop in our hearts and our lives and in the world around us. Author Mike Green remarks that in this part of the Lord's Prayer, in essence, this is what we're saying to God the Father. I want what you want, Daddy. Your kingdom is an awesome kingdom of light and love. And I want your kingdom to advance this, in this world of darkness and hate. My desire is the same as your desire, to see everyone come out of this world of sin and into your kingdom. Speaker Dallas Willard defines heaven in this way. Heaven is simply God breaking into our reality. So in this way, the Lord's Prayer reminds us we can experience heaven in our prayer. We're reminded that in the way it was in the beginning, the way that it shall be in all eternity is now breaking in and transforming our reality. Lord, let your kingdom, your presence, your right to rule break in here. Let us taste heaven. Jesus certainly is challenging duty-bound, obligated prayers. And I think he gives us five quick things to take away. One, our prayers experience greater effectiveness when we approach them in a serene and serious and sincere way. Two, we should intentionally invite God's kingdom into our reality. That's why he puts it as the second line of this prayer. Third, the more we reflect on God's kingdom in our prayers, the more intimately we'll begin to see God at work around us. You know, when we're disconnected from prayer, it's really easy for us to say, God, where are you? And we kind of put up these blinders where we can only see the problem before us. But I think when we begin to really pray the Lord's Prayer and ask God's kingdom to show up, those blinders get enlarged and we begin to say, oh, God, I may not see you here right now, but I see you over here and over here. For we pray for God's rule and reign in our lives because it's meant to be experienced in our hearts and lives. We're supposed to have prayers that are effective and powerful. And lastly, the more we focus on God's kingdom in our prayers, 
the more God's presence will renovate our hearts, our minds, our world, renovating our outlook, our choices, and in our actions. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, he remarks, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This kind of threefold approach to life is important. Paul calls us to always be in a state of worship, to be consistently in prayer, and that gratitude should congruently go through our lives. Paul remind, uh, David reminds us of something similarly in Psalm 145, 18. He says there's a power in our prayer, and that is this, that God has come near. David remarks, the Lord is near to those who call on him. Guys, this is what Jesus is now fulfilling and teaching through the Lord's prayer. This week, as you find ways to respond to Paul's challenge of ongoing prayer, I hope you will utilize the rhythm of the Lord's prayer and incorporate an invitation to God's right to rule and reign in your life and in his situations of your life. In prayer, we remember that God is near to us. And as we enter a serene, serious, and sincere place of prayer, God's rule and reign will come close. And what that means is there's no place in our lives that our Father and our King cannot come in and flex his right to rule, to reign, and to transform the situation. Thank you for continuing to journey with me through this series. I'm looking forward to what we learn as we go on. But may God's rule and reign become more and more aware and central to your times of prayer. This is my hope for my prayer as well. Next week, as we continue, we're going to be looking at how God then moves into a focus on him as the provider or God's provision and how that is an important aspect of our time of prayer.